Hi everyone, welcome back to Attention to Detail. Today we're on our fourth day of our 10 Days, 10 Mahler Symphonies project. That of course means that we're doing the fourth symphony. I actually wanted to announce that for the next few days we may veer a little bit off order and, and skip around a little bit based on uh, just just what we're we're feeling at the moment. Some guests I have coming in who who do will I think we'll do the seventh uh, before expected. But regardless, I imagine that people are it's it's a lot to keep up with ten Mahler symphonies in ten days anyway. So if you're a few symphonies behind, have no fear. There's plenty of time to catch up. And today we're reviewing the fourth, and I am joined by one of my close friends, conductor. Uh, is the assistant conductor at the Fort Worth Symphony. Uh, we went to school together as well. Alex Amsel, welcome to the podcast. First time guest. How's it going? Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. I'm a big fan of the, the podcast. I've been listening to it from uh, day one, so it's nice to finally be on with you. Very nice, very nice words. We, uh, we were thinking about... I was thinking we could toss Mahler for entirely out the window and talk about the only sporting event that's actually currently going on at the moment that I think we're both following the candidates tournament in, in chess. What oh you... yeah, the, the main reason I wake up at 6am every day, just to make sure I catch all the coverage of that. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I thought about tailoring my sleep schedule towards, because uh, it's in Russia, I want to catch all of the action, so I, unfortunately, I just don't have it in me to wake up that early, but, but we catch up later. And also, and also to have the problem with chess. The reason why it's so hard to follow competitive chess is that the games take six hours. But suddenly, we we all have six hours. So yeah, we have we've run out of excuses. We can sit and watch someone think for thirty minutes and, and pretend we're we're very very much into it. Exactly, exactly. Well, I guess we should stick to what we're experts in, which is music rather than chess, unfortunately. Talk a little bit about the Fourth Symphony. I'll just give a brief rundown, because actually the Fourth Symphony in many ways is connected to the Third Symphony that we reviewed yesterday. And I wanted to talk, the Fourth Symphony was written in 1899 and 1900. And we mentioned on our review of the Third Symphony yesterday that originally... Mahler had the idea for a seventh movement of this third symphony called Das Himmlische Leben, or alternately, What the Child Tells Me. And I mentioned briefly that he decided to cut that movement, and in a way, he expanded that idea into the entire symphony that is the fourth symphony of Mahler. So in a, if you want to hear this entire symphony as kind of the continuation, sequel, last movement of the third symphony, that is certainly one way to do it. The the last movement of this symphony, which is kind of the culmination of all of this, Mahler himself said was kind of the top of the pyramid of this symphony and maybe of the past two symphonies. So the we've been talking about the program of the symphonies that we've been listening to so far, one, two, and three. And 
around the year 1900, Mahler started shifting his idea on programmatic versus absolute music, and he started to think more in terms of absolute music, which means music without titles or a storyline. And this was the time when he pulled a lot of the titles that he had originally given to his earlier symphonies. And this one, similarly, he was starting to move away from this idea of program music. But there is still something of a program that we can cling to in this symphony, especially due to the text in the last movement. There's kind of a program of the idea of life after death or the heavenly life, as we mentioned, das himmlische Leben. And so one of the elements that certainly this symphony is dealing with is what is the afterlife. And it's it's a very different approach from another symphony that tried to answer that question in a different way, the, the second, which we've already reviewed. Here, we're much more in the world of the third symphony, that more kind of natural Nietzschean world that we talked about on our previous breakdown. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, a different approach idea to the idea of... Um, life after death, and it's also an attempt in a way for... Mahler was fascinated with the idea of musica celestis, or the music of the heavens, and this was uh, an idea that fascinated him, and he dealt with a little bit in the last symphony as well, in the fifth movement, the angels movement, but certainly does so here in this piece. Um, And I think, you know, there's if we want to assign some sort of program to this piece, there's, there's two approaches. One is that we go back to earth to real life. And we once again have to work our way up to, uh, heaven. The alter, the alternative is that we've, we've gone through this third symphony. We've achieved enlightenment and now we've made it to some sort of heaven. But even in heaven, you have to go through a journey to really get to the top of the pyramid, as Mahler said, or, or the end goal. And before we dive into the music, I just wanted to read one quote that Mahler gave about this symphony, which I think is a fantastic quote for all of Mahler's symphonies, where he was saying, I have to explore new paths in every work. That is why it's always so hard to get started. Whatever routine one has acquired is of no help. One has to learn afresh for every new work. Thus, one remains eternally a beginner. And it makes me, you know, he, it's, it's such an interesting idea that every time he started a new symphony, he had to reset. It's like, Alex, I know you're a, uh, you're a fan of the San Antonio Spurs, right? I am. Yeah. I know where this is going. Yeah, I, I watch a bunch of Greg Popovich videos. I don't know if you're the same, but he always talks about at the beginning of each season you have to completely reset and start from scratch because it's a new team. You can't just... It's like they have to reinvent the wheel every season, but that's what makes them so good. Right, and that's something that's fascinating with, with Mahler for that is that just because you're resetting doesn't mean you're letting go of, of everything that you already know and everything you've done and experienced. Right. Um, so you, you reset to start something new, but those experiences are, are still true as you as you begin a new chapter. Exactly, and it's a good point because as we get into these later symphonies, especially the next three, 
we'll see a really clear stylistic evolution, a kind of maturity that comes for Mahler as he gets later and later in his symphonies, and so that will be something to listen for. So we're going to start, dive right into the first movement, which, again, no real titles attached to these pieces, but we got some suggestions from letters by Mahler. The first movement could be titled something like the world as now, or it's some some picture of kind of the earthly life, the earthly world. And I'll play for you the very beginning of this first movement, and then we will comment a little bit on this really interesting opening to a symphony. I mean, it's a, and as you mentioned, it, this, this symphony starts with sleigh bells. I don't know of any other symphony that has sleigh bells even in it, let alone to open the piece. But also, as you mentioned, yeah, any, the, the theme of this symphony is going to be childhood and, and I think it's an excellent point to listen throughout this symphony. We've already mentioned it in some of our previous breakdowns too, that irony uh, kind of eerie irony always plays an important role in all of Mahler's works, even in the most optimistic ones like this. And so it is an important opening that we'll hear more of later. And then we hear a really kind of classical sounding theme. And this sets us up for what's going to be a very classical sounding 
first movement. I think a lot of people. Would you agree that a lot of a lot of people seem to not like this symphony or think it's backwards looking because they almost just call it a Mozart esque symphony and because because especially this this first movement sounds very much like like Haydn or Mozart. Right. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of um, Mahler aficionados were were confused when he wrote this because he had been expanding what we conceived as a symphony in the previous two symphonies and in, in the and the second and third um, multiple you know more than four movements obviously with uh, choruses and, and things like that and this is sort of uh, an homage back to maybe even I always think of, of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Uh, in the same structure of four movements, with the second movement being the the scherzo and the third being the the adagio, the slow one. Um, yeah, that's a that's a, a way looking back. That's uh, a good point. A type of form. So he's relying less on the, I think, less on the uh, importance of of form and more on the context of what he's trying to say. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought about the the ordering of of these movements like that, but that's, that's a good point. So anyways, to get back to the music, this, as we might expect from a piece that's paying homage to its classical roots in some way, maybe, maybe looking back to both childhood, but also to the classical era in music, we get a very clear sonata form in this first movement, something that we've talked about already in these breakdowns. And so if you'll remember, we, we usually have two, contrasting themes in a sonata form. So let's hear the kind of second theme. Of course, Mahler always plays with these forms a little bit, but let's hear the second theme, how that sounds in relation to the first. So yeah, I failed to mention before we hear the second theme, that nice cello line, um, there's actually this weird interlude in the middle where we hear this very aggressive woodwind call. But then we get this cello line. Alex, I'm curious. I So I found a... Let me play for you another clip. This is actually a clip from a Beethoven piano sonata. And I want to see if this is just me or if this is an actual uh, thematic connection that we've made here this is not I, I uh, found this in in the Adorno book that I've already mentioned on some previous things so I'm not going to take credit for finding this this potential reference but I'm curious to think if if you think Mahler stole this second theme from this Beethoven sonata here's here's that Beethoven sonata
so the first the the Mahler's Mahler's second theme goes. Beethoven's is What do we think? Stolen? Listen, I'm I'm never gonna be one to, to fight with Adorno, so I'm I'm gonna go with yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah, I I, I mean it's 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 close. That's a deep cut though. I, I don't know if he I mean Mahler knew a lot of music so he could have been I don't know exactly what that reference is supposed to mean but regardless that, that that's maybe where our second theme came from so then uh, one of my favorite passages in the first movement we'll hear what might be called a closing section really we get a whole new third theme here played first by the oboe let's listen to that as well on previous podcasts as you said the idea of Mahler as kind of a the, the term that some people use as a maximalist of where it expand everything to its greatest possibilities and so that's not only contrast between themes but also as you mentioned even within that closing theme we hear it, suddenly it goes from very soft to very loud quick changes of emotion so then we get Again, to, to highlight this, we get a coda to the exposition that goes back. We get this hyper-expressive theme. We get a kind of jolly, jovial, joking theme. And then we get a uh, really nostalgic and peaceful closing to the uh, exposition, the first part of the sonata form. So let's listen to that, and then we'll hear... You'll notice the thing that initiates the development where we begin the next big section in the form is those sleigh bells again and you'll hear them very prominently come in the middle of this clip.
so yeah, we hear that that nostalgic closing theme, and then we enter this world of the development with those sleigh bells again, and this this development is my favorite portion of the movement. It's it's really interesting music. It sounds almost to me like we we walk through the woods as we've done so many times in other Mahler symphonies and there's all these little sounds of nature that are, are popping up. Um, tricky development to conduct, too. What are you hearing in this development? Yeah, a couple couple things to, to note, I think. Um, the first thing you hear, obviously, is the recalling of the, the very introduction, the, the sleigh bells with with the creepy figures, but before as he had separated that creepy life, uh, you know, not joining it with the opening, with the, the main melodic material, which was uh, placid and, and relaxing, uh, now you hear both uh, all together. So he's almost joining these two very different worlds for the first time. And uh, as he does that, uh, he also introduces the solo violin, um, which we'll find out, I'm sure, as we go through the rest of the symphony, becomes quite a prominent um, character in, in, in the whole narrative of the piece. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a good point. It's not so much necessarily... The, the, for the violin solo is playing important thematic material, but like you said, more importantly, the fact that we get this violin soloist. And fantastic recording, I think... Uh, I'm going to commend myself for choosing this recording. The violinist really plays with a kind of uh, gypsy-esque quality, which will be important later on. So, pat, big pat on the back for myself. I'm, I never do that, you know. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, honestly, if, if I didn't know any better, I would. After your description, I, I would have guessed it was you playing the violin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. Uh... I have been known at times to potentially, would you say, maybe overstate my own abilities uh, on the violin. I, I I think you're 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 a confident player for your level. Okay, that we'll we'll call it that. <laughs> Anyways, so so then we get we get a big long development section, very worth listening to. Let's listen to another important passage in this development where. The music suddenly stops, and we get very interestingly all four flute se- flute players, the entire flute section, playing in unison this totally new theme that feels like it comes very much out of nowhere. Let's hear that passage.
development is um, is interesting, but not only because it's it's new material, but because we're going to hear it again in the fourth movement, um, and especially with Mahler, and especially with this piece in particular, I think, um, you know, Mahler always thought about heaven and the afterlife as uh, not just a destination, but an arrival, so even though we're introducing these new themes, I think an interesting way to think about Mahler's music and the way he composed is that it's not always foreshadowing, although we can certainly see it as that, is that it's also, you can also see it as a prelude or prequel to the actual destination. So it's not that it's just part of the journey, is that this is um, actually all just prequels to the final uh, goal yeah. in life that he has, which is the fourth movement, uh, which is heaven in this case. Right, I think, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at what we've been talking about on this podcast as these, like, breakthrough moments where you get a, a window into something that's going to come much later so that is certainly the case that's happening here which we'll hear this music later i'll play for you one more section from the development this is the end of the development the kind of climax where all these themes get fused together and then at this it kind of dissolves into this really interesting transition passage to get us back to the recapitulation. So let's, this is a little longer passage, let's listen to the end of the development into the, the recap. So I got to tell you, I'm a little, I'm not going to say what recording this is, but I'm a little disappointed in the conductor of this particular recording. Alex, you and I are both conductors ourselves. This is a famous passage because Mahler marks in the score specifically, you are not supposed to slow down at all until you arrive exactly at that moment where this theme comes back. And it's supposed to jolt you back into a totally different, slower tempo takes a lot of courage to actually pull that off, and so I'm a little disappointed in this uh, this particular conductor. Yeah, that's that's one of the one of the tricky things with with Mahler. Obviously, is um, since he was a conductor himself, he was very specific in what he wanted, and he would often write some might say 
make too many indications for the conductor, for other conductors in, in his score. Um, but at the same time, he was he was known, I think this is this might be worth mentioning, but he was friends with uh, this Dutch conductor, uh, Mengelberg, who is famous in the, in the conducting world, mainly, I guess, because of his very, very wild recording. <laughs> but Mengelberg was actually quite a good friend of Mahler, and they talked about how to conduct Mahler's music quite a bit, and even so, Mengelberg took quite quite a, a few um, liberties, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and Mahler seemingly did encourage that to to an extent. Um, so even if it's coming from Mengelberg and Mahler, I think one of the difficulties as a conductor is uh, to know when to interpret those freedoms and when to really stick to to what he wanted. Right, I think it's a good point. In this particular, and that is something that every conductor has to deal with in Mahler, is every time you feel like you should push the tempo, he knew you would feel that way, and he writes, don't push the tempo. And every time you want to uh, ask people to play a little softer, he says, no diminuendo. But this one, it's very specific. He says, like, several times, do not slow down at all. And so you kind of have to... You kind of have to try, you have to try to do it at least, I think. But anyways, interesting moment in that, in that passage that we should highlight. We hear another, it's one of those quintessential Mahler, like cataclysm moments after we're hearing all these themes played really loudly. And this one, I don't know about Prelude. I think this is a straight foreshadowing because what we hear is... The trumpet plays that amidst all of this chaos, and we'll just leave that for another episode, but that will certainly come back in in a later symphony. Um, But for now, we're still in the fourth. So then he recaps a lot of the same material, the same themes. I just want to play for you the very last coda of this first movement. It's a delightful moment, and uh, my teacher, my, my conducting teacher once told me, he he pointed this out to me and I thought it was was brilliant, is that Mahler always uses German tempo markings. Um, He does so throughout this entire symphony and and through all of his symphonies. At the very end of this symphony, the, the first movement, these last four bars, he writes Allegro, which is a Italian tempo marking for just fast. And it's almost like this one last homage to the classical world. It's so interesting that he wrote that one Italian tempo marking, that everything else is bevecht, uh, you know, tons of German terms, but here he just wrote allegro. And so let's hear that ending little coda to the first movement. Ties it up so nicely in a in a little bow. Any last thoughts on the first movement? 
can't imagine it ending any other way, I think. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. All right, second. Second movement. Really interesting, peculiar movement in the context of this symphony. Again, we don't have a specific title, but some titles were given to us via other conductors who, who talked to Mahler, like Bruno Walter, or um, just through his own kind of correspondence. He would hint at these titles a lot. The title of this movement could be something like Potentance, which means dance of, de- dance of death, or Friend Death is Striking Up the Dance. There's something about death dancing in this movement. And interestingly, as you mentioned, Alex, the, the, the solo violin now comes to play a very important role in this movement. In fact, the violinist, the concertmaster for this piece has to have two violins on stage, one of them tuned differently for this uh, movement. It's tuned out of tune, and this is supposed to evoke the idea of a sort of street fiddler, wandering street musician. These wandering street musicians appear all over German Romanticism as a sort of sign of death. There's uh, not only German Romanticism, there's this piece, Dance Macabre by Saint-Saëns, which is has a similarly out-of-tune violin. At the end of Schubert's song cycle, Winterreise, there's this song called Der Leiermann, which is about this kind of wandering, hurdy-gurdy musician. These are all meant, for some reason, in, in Romanticism to represent some element of death. So why don't we listen to a little bit of the beginning of this, this scherzo movement with this out-of-tune violin. Just because 
the violinist is good and, and getting the character, but that's exactly why Mahler requested for the second instrument for the concert master to play on to be tuned a whole step higher um, on every string. So the, the sound is a little bit uh, tighter because the, the strings are pulled tighter. So it gives it a whole different uh, sound. So it's not just the character, but it takes you in, into a different sound world as well. Yeah, it's it, you're, you're, it's a really interesting tempo marking in Gemächlicher Bewegung, which means like unhurried or in a comfortable tempo. And like you said, I mean, it's the weirdest word gemächlich to associate with such an uncomfortable movement in so many ways. Um, we also heard another great example at the end there where it shifts into more major, more peaceful music. The, an example of what we were talking about earlier where the harp plays these notes that stick out really aggressively in the context of what seems to be a totally peaceful passage of music. And this is a good this is a good movement to listen to to really get a a good sense of what a Mahler scherzo is all about because it has so much of that those jagged edges those that feeling of wandering through the forest but also the kind of the irony the banality all of that stuff that we we've come to expect so two other passages I want to highlight from this scherzo we really get three musical ideas. We get the beginning, which we heard. We heard some of that more relaxed major music. And then here's the other main uh, thematic material that we hear in this, this scherzo movement. Yeah, so to me, this music actually sounds much more gemächlich in a way, or comfortable. What do you What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Again, just sort of shocks you into into a different character. And um, as you were saying that in, in the first movement, he's maybe borrowed or, or stolen some some tunes from from Beethoven. Um, I think in this section, he sort of does it to himself as well. Um, there, there's so many moments here that remind you of, of his uh, other famous work, the Das Naben Wunderhorn, and as this piece is the culmination of, of his three Das Naben symphonies, uh, pertaining to three and four, um, the way he includes it in here is, I think, sort of a nice uh, wrapping up from from the, the death that he introduced first, and then he, he brings this very classic um, recollection of, of ideas from, from a previous work of his. Yeah, we haven't talked a ton about Das Knaben Wunderhorn on this podcast, but I've, I've mentioned it a couple times. It's a, It would be a great work for people who are interested to go and check out and to, to get some more context to these symphonies. A lot of the material that we've been talking about, like 
the um, St. Anthony and the Fishes from the Second Symphony and, and some other things uh, had, were, was borrowed from this set of songs that Mahler composed. It was originally a set of poetry that he really enjoyed and in fact, Das Himmlische Leben, the last movement of this symphony, was originally part of that set. And so that's why a lot of people think of, as you mentioned, these symphonies as the Wunderhorn symphonies. Let's just keep one theme from this passage also in our mind. The clarinet plays this melody. We hear that several times and then it goes... We hear some other material after that that juts out, but we'll just keep that in the back of our minds as with so many of these Mahler themes as we, we make our way towards the last movement. One other passage in this movement that we have to listen to, which again will be a, a massive clue to what's coming later, let me play that passage for you as well now. Interesting interpretation from this conductor on this passage. He really overdoes these slides, these glissades. It's a very sappy sounding thing. To me, I, I often when I conceive of this passage, it's much more peaceful than that. What do you think? This is a little faster than I would do it too. Yeah, and at, at least from, from where I am, and I, I don't have the best uh, take of the recording, but it also sounds like he's or she's really overdoing the, the dynamics for this section. Yeah. Uh, which is something that's also very difficult to, to put into context with, with Mahler. Um, you know, he writes a lot of what we call crescendo and diminuendo, these uh, sudden, you know, getting louder and getting softer. And, and oftentimes they can be overdone and what some might call over-romanticized. Um, and for, for this specific thing, this music which Mahler so often writes uh, a sort of landler if you will which is a yeah. very a slow waltz which he had a, a conflicting life with um, this Viennese waltz that he wanted to sort of pertain into this high class and you know never quite being allowed to, to be a part of it um, it feels it's, it feels overdone to the point where it's it's taken taking the music out of the context it's in to me. Yeah, I think this is a tricky question for any person conducting Mahler. Is there are passages that feel like they almost need the sappiness because it calls for it, and there's something narrative or in the music that requires it. This one, to me, not necessarily, but we can we can disagree. Um, meaning myself and, and the conductor of this particular recording. Importantly, what I want to point out, we, we hear that same theme 
I just played for you a second ago again, but in a different key. And the key we're in here is D major. And I don't want us to, we haven't, as always, I don't want to get too bogged down in, in key relations because a lot of our listeners can can start going, what is that? I mean, too much information. But all we need to remember is D major. We got a glimpse of it there. If you'll remember back to the third symphony, that was in fact the key of what, the, which we were trying to attain in the third movement of the last movement of those glimpses that we got in the fourth movement of the third symphony. And now we've got another glimpse in D major. So it feels like D is going to be an important key to us. So we'll keep that in the back of our minds. The scherzo then continues on and wraps up with a little more of the uh, out-of-tune violin material. Any last thoughts on the scherzo? I think we're good to go. All right, let's, let's keep it rolling. Third movement, the longest movement in this symphony by far. The slowest as well. This is another uh, one of Mahler's kind of. We talked about in the in the third symphony. This last movement is one of Mahler's massive adagios, and this movement is a little bit in that mold as well. Again, if we're talking about interesting tempo markings, this the marking technically of of this. Movement is Ruival Poco Adagio in parentheses. I mentioned that he doesn't usually use Italian markings, so that's why it's in parentheses, which means kind of relaxed, restful. But Poco Adagio, what what do you make of that? Another a, a classic difficult uh, scenario to interpret from from Mahler because. He's often so specific, uh, right, in, in the, the character and the tempo that he wants. But the poco adagio can mean so many different things. And, and to me, I always try and equate it less to tempo and speed and more to the feeling. So if you if you can, as a conductor or a player, you can get the right feeling to evoke, um, that's often more important than, than the tempo. Right. And poco adagio meaning poco is less and adagio is a, a slow tempo marking, so presumably we're meant to take that as faster than adagio, but again, it's unclear. Mahler did say about this movement that it could really be labeled as an andante, any tempo, because it shifts so much. Let's hear a little bit. The, the, the form of this movement, I should mention, is it's a slow movement, but it's a double theme and variations, which means that we'll get two themes that then return several times and get varied. So let's hear those two themes so we know what, what to expect.
So that's the first theme, this really beautiful, relaxed cello theme in D major. I'll play you the second one, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So there's our two themes. As you mentioned, Alex, maximal contrast. Yeah, even even though he doesn't really change the the tempo all that match all that much, you you can't help but but feel like he's living two different worlds at the same time. Yeah, it's an interesting. He he gave the the Saint Ursula. This is is the, the the saint, whoever that is, Saint Ursula is mentioned in the text of the fourth movement of this piece. And Mahler often said about this third movement that it's like looking at the face of Saint Ursula, that often has so many different expressions contained in one kind of solemn or serious face. We can make whatever we want with that, but in any case, like the. Adagio movement of the third section, we move from relaxation to a certain amount of pain. And I want to play for you one of the painful outbursts before we get some more. It's very similar to the third symphony last movement in a way. We get these rotations of material, and at the end of each, there's this kind of painful outburst moment. So let's listen to the, the first one of those. his life into his music and and 
him looking at his mother and seeing all these emotions in within one smile. Yeah, and as we've said already, that's a great point because this really is supposed to be a picture of childhood, and so to draw on his own memories from childhood makes makes perfect sense. So we get some more, as I mentioned, it's a theme in variations. We hear these themes again and they get varied. We hear it a third time in one of the trickiest passages to conduct where we get, again, these sudden jolts of temper, tempo that are supposed to be unprepared. And let's just catch the end of that passage where it really starts, this very peaceful theme starts winding up, getting faster and faster, and then we get a moment of, of breakthrough, seemingly. Yeah, so to me, it's it's hard to know what to make of that passage. It's clearly notable because the action completely stops and we get this moment of suspension after we've been speeding up. But I think in the context of what's to come, it's important in that it feels like a breakthrough in D major and we've been mentioning D major as an important key, partly because of this arrival right here. But actually... To me, this is sort of a, a fake breakthrough almost, because then we return back to the theme of the opening. And the real breakthrough, unmissable, let me play that for you now. And I'm actually, I'll let this play for a little while towards the end of this third movement. There's a lot here, so I encourage you to listen closely to the music here, because this is one of the, this is really the crux of the symphony, the, this two-minute passage of music. So try to catch all of the the musical themes that you hear in this this passage. But we'll break it down for you afterwards, so, so you don't have to listen that hard.
So before we break down that clip, I failed to include in that clip what, what happens right before which we hear two bassoons. Alex, your, uh, your original instrument. Have you ever played this piece? I have. I played it actually while we were at NEC together. Oh. Oh, you played it in my, in my concert. I, yeah, I played it in, in your... <laughs> yeah. It was so forgettable that I uh, didn't even remember you played that concert. It was unforgettable to me. Yeah, I think that was the concert where I wore a black shirt that had a white tag that was sticking out. Yeah, that was that was a rough wardrobe decision there. Yeah, um, you've only gone up since then. Yeah, exactly. But anyways, so you would have played this in that concert where the, the two bassoons play... which I should have included it, but that happens to be the resurrection motif of all things from the second symphony. He's quoting himself at the most opportune moment because I should point out we've heard suddenly... The the most notable thing we just heard in that clip is this massive explosion, massive explosion in not D major, but E major. We hear this huge explosion in E major. We have no idea what that key is supposed to mean, but we hear the horns play this theme. We hear that. And that, this is an unmistakable breakthrough moment, and we know that that must means something and then going even more self-quotation by Mahler we hear the the second violins play of all sections the second violins play and they play it again oops they play that figure twice this is the beginning, that melody is the beginning of a Mahler song called Ich bin Welt, uh, big long German title, but I Am Lost to the World is the title of this song by Mahler. It's from the Rückert leader, and fitting text, whenever he quotes himself with a song, the text is important, as we've mentioned. This one, I am lost to the world. So somehow it's one last little quotation he's making. We hear the resurrection idea. We hear this E major breakthrough. We hear this idea that he is lost to the world. And now we're going to transform to something else. And then we end up ending after this E major outburst. We end in D major again, that key that we've been hinting at so many times throughout this piece. Any, did I leave anything out from the third movement? No, I think you're good. No? Okay. Let's, uh, let's roll on to... The, the fourth movement goes... We go straight from the third to the fourth. It's called ataka, which means that you take no pause. And remember that theme that we just heard the horns play.
Now listen closely to what we hear at the beginning of the last movement. So we've we've finally arrived at the fourth movement now, the the kind of crux of, of everything what we've been aiming for, das Himmlische Leben. And from the outset we hear the singer who's meant now to represent a child. That's specifically why he chose a soprano. Um, this singer is singing in a child's voice, a child who has gone to heaven and is experiencing the heavenly life it's kind of a it's unclear whether this is something immensely tragic did it did a child die and now is in heaven or is this more the child idea that we mentioned from this third symphony from philosophers like schopenhauer and nietzsche the idea that the highest level of enlightenment is when you get into kind of a naive child-like state it's it's unclear what the message necessarily is of of this child singer but one way or another this is a child observing the heavenly life the first verses are very joyful i encourage you to go look at the text also just incredible incredibly beautiful music and but then we hear some some tumult and some uh some sort of ruckus and we get a few if if our listeners are listening keenly there's a few things that we would have caught there first of all unmissable those sleigh bells from the beginning of the symphony have come back now and are faster and more in our face than than ever before so we're we're hearkening back to the beginning of this symphony maybe those sleigh bells make a little more sense to us now in this in this new context but we also hear 
some music that you may recognize if you have been listening really closely to the previous symphonies. I'm going to play you a section from the fifth movement of the third symphony, where actually Mahler used some of this Das Himmlische Leben music as the first little glimpse to this last movement of the fourth symphony. If you remember the fifth movement of the third, it's what the angels tell me. And we've been talking about this idea of a musica celestis, music of the heavens. We tried to get some of that music in that fifth movement, but also very astutely Mahler added this music in that fifth movement as a as a real prelude, as as we might say, to what was to come in this very last movement of the fourth. So let's listen to that passage from the from the fifth movement of the third to hear where he took this music from. So we actually hear a lot of this kind of tumultuous minor music, and then we come to what we've been waiting for for the entire symphony. Suddenly the music stops and we shift into the key of E major, this really important key. The E major that was just very briefly hinted at with that huge explosion in the third movement where we heard that theme that would eventually be transformed into the theme of this last movement. Um, and here we've really, we feel that we've finally arrived. E major is going to be the ultimate key of this movement, a step higher than the final key of the previous symphony, D major. We've ratcheted things up a little higher because we've, we've made our way a little higher kind of metaphorically and and we get some of the most beautiful music Mahler ever wrote. I'm not going to play the very ending, probably partly because it's too soft for us even to hear on a podcast, something that you have to hear live, how, how soft it gets. I think the only... No, that, not, not even close. I was going to say the only Mahler symphony that ends quietly. That's, that's not even remotely true. But the first Mahler symphony that, that ends quietly um, makes it hard to program. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's hard to hard to follow a piece like this. Obviously, you don't want to do anything afterwards, but it it leaves you in quite a pensive state um, after going through through this journey. Uh, makes you makes you wonder a lot of things about life and and death and whatever you might believe in. Yeah, and it's you know, I it's a utterly profound ending to a symphony, but I think there's. There's so much emphasis in in classical music and among listeners that, that the ending of a concert, the ending of a symphony has to be triumphant, loud. Certainly people like Mahler because of that. But some of these pieces that end quietly, Brahms' third symphony is another one that ends quietly, and it, as a result, gets performed much less than the other symphonies. Just as good. I think uh, we can dispel with that notion, now that we've spent more than an hour breaking the symphony down, we can all agree that... Uh, this, this ending is fantastic too so let's not wait anymore let's listen to a little bit of the music from, from the ending but I won't spoil the, the very ending I encourage you to listen to that in the context of this whole movement this whole symphony 
so I, the, the text of what the singer sings here at the end is, is important, certainly. It, we only need to know a few, few lines, but no text better than this. No music on earth can be compared to ours. And then he talks about the angelic voices rouse the sen- senses so that everything awakens with joy. So the text itself is confirming that finally we've found the kind of musica celestis, the music of heaven. No music on earth can be compared to this. So it's almost like for a moment we've ascended this huge multi-symphonic ladder and now finally we've come to the, the music of the heavens. And if we remember that, just to, just to tie a, a knot in some of the thematic connections that we were making before, if we remember that peculiar flute moment in the first movement. And now at the beginning of this E major passage, we hear the English horn, the violins, the singer, they all play the melody. The English horn goes... kind of like those three repeated notes at the beginning and then we hear and then a remnant of that flute theme very similar ties it back once again to this idea that we've come from somewhere to to get here it's an incredibly poignant ending to the symphony and so so quietly in this e major key that we've we've finally attained maybe eh, i can't even say it. i was going to say maybe my favorite ending to any Mahler symphony but alex as you know i i have also a habit of one of my favorite things to say about like many many pieces of classical music is top five piece of all time and i've probably said that about yeah we have of Jacob that are his top five symphonies of all time. <laughs> yeah, so, so my, my, um, because we love it so much. yeah, my, uh, my kind of bold statements that I make pretty frequently should probably be taken with a grain of salt. Um, anything I left off on this, on this last movement? Maybe the one thing I, I'd like to point out, um, not to heart on this too much, but I just think it's so important this this idea of the bell, the sleigh bells, that because he introduces them somewhat ambiguously at the beginning, uh, and we're not at the beginning of the symphony, of course, in the first movement, and we're not quite sure what to make of them. I think whether they're celebratory or uh, foreshadowing of, of something terrible, but you know, there's there's a couple moments where in the fourth movement the the bells return and the the imagery that's supposed to be represented there with the text is that. It's a moment where St. John leads uh, a lamb uh, to slaughter for the feast that they're about to have in, in heaven. And as a child looking at this, you know, we, we might think of maybe a lot of people think of the slaughter of, of a sacrificial lamb or something as, as something normal. Um, but to a child, it can be quite shocking. So I think it's important to hear these bells now as we finally, I think, see them the way Mahler does that this notion that uh, there's death even in, in heaven and Mahler was a a very uh, religious man though he didn't pertain uh, to any 
religion. Uh, uh, so I mean to say he, he believed in, in God very strongly. He just didn't um, ascribe to, to any single religion, but he, he believed in the afterlife. And I just think moments like these put the, the, the idea of these bells puts um, multiple meanings into what he sees as heaven and earth and, and life and death and they're sort of all around you everywhere you turn uh, regardless of, of what you believe in and what state you're in yeah that's that's a really interesting idea the idea of death even in heaven very very profound ending to the symphony I hadn't even thought of that and yet another that's a yet another Malerian layer here that it's just one of the things about all these pieces is they're so rife with interpretation that you can really just I mean listen I've been spending 12 hours a day with these pieces and uh, I'm, I'm super excited to listen to them again and to think about them more any final thoughts on, on Mahler's fourth or did we did we cover it I think that just about does it all right. What are we uh, after we sign off? We're gonna play like twelve hours of of chess to prepare for for round three of the candidates tomorrow. Yeah, just uh, as a as a brief warm up, just so we can follow what those guys are doing. I think we're on. I think we're on a similar level. I, I I'm guessing that by the end of our month or two month long quarantine, we'll we'll be able to at least you know hang in there for three or four moves yeah listen listen during this this tough time there's gonna be a lot of online chess that's gonna be played so so maybe a little bit right now well anyways with that alex thank you so much for joining us uh it's been great breaking down this fourth symphony with you and to all of our listeners we will see you back here tomorrow for mystery symphony i don't think it'll be the fifth maybe the seventh or the sixth we will find out. Uh, But thanks, as always, for joining us. Thank you, Alex, and we'll see you back here soon.